Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who have no guilt in life, no, or, nor any fear of death. It is an enemy that has been conquered for us. It is an enemy that no longer controls how we live. We are a people who know that five seconds after death, we will be so overwhelmed with the love of God over us from the day we walked into the household of faith to the day that we enter his presence. We are a people, O oh God, who are born to die just as our Savior was. And on that event, there will be no sorrow. There will be celebration because of what Christ has accomplished for his people. There is no more sin, no more guilt, no more shame. We are a people who live no longer under fear of condemnation because of all that which Christ has accomplished for sinners such as I. Our Father, we thank you for an hour a week where we can be reminded of things eternal. The, The world presses in on us and shouts at us to, to come and buy and come and enjoy and be, and be led off of a path of righteousness. But here, here is an hour where we are reminded of eternity. We are reminded who bought us, whose we are. We're reminded, O oh God, of our inconsistencies, but indeed we are also reminded of grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. In, in spite of our failings and inconsistencies, there is grace. And I pray, O oh God, that we would never be a people that would live casually in the face of grace. That we would never take grace for granted. And yet, O oh God... Once we understand the beauties and excellencies of grace, it raises our interest. It enhances our desire to live Christ-like lives. And so, Father, do that. Do that among us now. Do that here in this this brief hour of worship. Draw Draw us into a sweeter and more intimate fellowship with the God who made us and then redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Father, we are grateful for all that we enjoy. We are a, we are a rich people. And we pray that as, um, as we consider how to respond to your bounty in our lives, that it will make us sacrificial people. Our Father, we're not trying to live up to the minimum standard. We're not trying to give up to the minimum standard. We're trying to respond in wonder, love, and grace to a God who has displayed such, such bounty. So, Father, take our, um, take our hearts all over again and take these monies and use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that alone. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and return with me to the book of Genesis where we continue our study of the book of Genesis. Right now, we are involved in a look at the life of Abraham. If you'll follow, I'd like to read to you the entire chapter of 16. The 16th chapter, it's only 16 verses, so you follow as I read. Genesis chapter 16 at verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, 
had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt in ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I also, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahi Roy. Observe it between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. About 18 months ago or so, I entitled a sermon that I preached here. It was in the midst of all that grace venture push. I entitled a sermon, BHAG, B-H-A-G. I'm sure you'll remember my sermon titles. But uh, I got that little BHAG from a business book. And the BHAG uh, apparently is well known among uh, corporate America. And it stands for a big, hairy, audacious goal. And so I preached about Grace Venture, which was our big, hairy, audacious goal. Well, this morning you may have noted that I have a different sermon title, but very similar. It's BHAM. And that stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Mess. What you have in chapter 16, ladies and gentlemen, is a big, hairy, audacious mess. If if chapter 15, if you'll recall from last week, that was that covenant... um, uh, giving uh, chapter where the, the smoking pot passed through those cloven pieces of animals. If that was a chapter on faith, ladies and gentlemen, if chapter 15 was a chapter on great faith, then chapter 16 is a chapter on a great lapse of faith, a great breach of faith, a great disappointment in faith. Because, ladies and gentlemen, what you got here is a big old, ugly, hairy, audacious mess. Uh, Abram and Sarah may, be a, may have remembered how stupefied they were back in chapter 15, but apparently that's gone. 
Because what you see unfolding here, ladies and gentlemen, is not an expression of faith. It's the expression of the opposites. Sarah, bless her little heart, comes up with a suggestion that she thought was a good one. I mean, it's um, it's uh, 10 years later now. Abraham is 85. He still has no son. And um, Sarah is not exactly what you'd call a spring chicken either. So Sarah comes up with a suggestion. And her suggestion, of course, is, as you can see, is that she offered her maid Hagar, a substitute mother. Hagar, we're told, is an Egyptian. You might remember back in chapter 12 when Abraham went down to Egypt and told his wife to tell the Pharaoh that he was, she was his sister. Remember all that? Well, once they left Egypt, Pharaoh gave him male and female servants. Well, one of the female servants that Pharaoh gave to Abraham was this woman, Hagar. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to pay the piper. Um, that, um, that fiasco in chapter 12 down in Egypt uh, has left its marks on Abraham and Sarah. And you're going to see just how consequential those marks are in chapter 16. Um, what you find is in chapter 12, one decision of flesh being made. And the consequences of that choice of flesh leads to another choice of flesh in chapter 16. Both of these instances, by the way, accompanied by a similar circumstance. That is, they didn't pray in chapter 12, and they don't pray in chapter 16. So whereas Abraham and Sarah are out of Egypt, Egypt is not out of Abraham and Sarah. So they got a situation on their hands, and who needs to pray? And Sarah, bless her little sweet picking, pea picking heart, she's got a she's got a suggestion. And then we're told in verse two that Abraham heeds the voice of Sarah. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the sparks begin to fly. Uh, the fact that Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah means trouble. Troubled spelled H-A-G-A-R. Abraham, where is your head? What are you thinking? Didn't you just have this incredible experience where, the, where God passed through the faces of the animals? What are you thinking? I mean, there, you know, it's such a, such a height of faith, and here's such a depth of faith. What's the matter with you, son? Well, before you, um, you judge Abraham too harshly, which we are prone to do, you know, as evangelicals, um, I want you to take a closer look at the story with me. And um, let, me, let me just um, draw your attention and focus it a bit more on the story. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, um, this story may shock our 21st century sensibilities. You know, we, we live in a culture where we're not even sure we want to have children at all. But in this culture, um, children were considered the greatest blessing of God because the children were the ones that worked the fields. They were the ones that, uh, you know, fought the battles. They were the ones that took care of the aged parents. Uh, they were just... They were the, the prized possession of parents. You know, they, they in essence became your 401k. 
and, 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 and having children through surrogates, that is a, a surrogate maternity, was, was a, a custom, a, an institution that was widely accepted in this culture. It was a cultural norm, and it is recorded often in ancient Near Eastern legal documents. Now, now, living with the consequences of the institution is an entirely different matter. But the, but the institution was uh, perfectly legal, perfectly accepted, perfectly normal, cultural norm, ladies and gentlemen. So what's the problem? Well, gang, um, the, the problem doesn't have to do with legalities. The problem has to do with something spiritual. It's a spiritual problem that's in front of us here, ladies and gentlemen. For instance, and just in kind of a broad stroke, um, what you find happening here is Abraham living not by faith, but by sight. He, um, he is trusting his own intuitions, his own intuitive logic, you know? Um, he, he, he's, he's allowing his culture to lead him. Um, they may have been within their legal rights in this story, but um, you don't see a shred of the exercise of faith in this story. Another part of the problem, I think, is that he doesn't seem to know his wife very well. I mean, that woman has a real dark side to her, and um, he, he lets it run wild. Her, mer- her motives were, at best... Um, mixed, but um, what man wouldn't be vulnerable to this kind of offer? She's a, she's a schemer. Um, in that respect, she's similar to Eve. You know, you watch Eve give her husband an apple. Well, here we watch Sarah give her husband Hagar. And boy, does that produce some results. Not good results, but it sure produces some results. Take a look at them with me, because the chickens quickly come home to roost, ladies and gentlemen. In verse 4, we're told that Hagar gets uppity. You know, barrenness was, was, was considered a, a disgrace in this culture. And so the fact that Sarah can't have children and, and now Hagar's pregnant. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Sarah has, um, her stock has dropped considerably. She is, um, uh, she's, uh, she's lost status. Keep that thought. Let, let me read you this. This is just three verses out of the book of Proverbs. Listen to this. For three things the earth is perturbed, yes, for four it cannot bear up. For a servant, when he reigns, for a fool, when he is filled with food, a hateful woman, when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. (laughs) One of the four things, ladies and gentlemen, that the world simply cannot stand is a maid when she moves out in front of her mistress. I mean, the earth shakes. It's perturbed, says the text. Well, that's what you got here, ladies and gentlemen. You've got a maid uh, supplanting her mistress. 
And uh, it is just beginning to get ugly. As a result of the uppityness of, uh, of Hagar, Sarah comes to her husband in verse 5 and, and um, turns on him. Turns on Abraham. Now, this is, this is logic that is pretty hard to understand, ladies and gentlemen. Wasn't this your idea, Sarah? I mean, aren't you the one that initiated this thing? And yet, Sarah is only interested in passing the buck to somebody. And um, so, so what you have here is an instance of the first uh, domestic squabble. Actually, it's more than that. It's, a, it's the first marital triangle. And then, in response to his wife, Sarah, Abraham in verse 6, does the utterly despicable. Look at what he does in verse 6, ladies and gentlemen. I can, he says, so Abram said to Sarah, okay, fine with me. She's, your, she's yours. You do to her anything you want. Do to her as you please. <laughs> now, isn't that a man of faith? Aren't you impressed with him here? Well, she's yours. He treats her like a piece of furniture. Throws her under the bus. Yeah, I know she's carrying my child, but no problem. Do with her as you like. Abraham, what are you doing? He seems to desire conjugal peace at any price. And so he washes his hands of the matter and, and, and surrenders his headship of the home and turns to his wife, who is a shrew. And he says, I don't care what you do with it. Whatever seems right, just go ahead. And then the last statement in verse 6, Sarah says, good. And we're told that Sarah dealt with her harshly. Oh, what an understatement. As a result of dealing with her harshly, Sarah, I mean, or Hagar runs. And then another result of this little uh, liaison is the birth of Ishmael. Everybody knows Ishmael is? Ishmael is the father of all Arab nations, ladies and gentlemen. That's why the uh, Muslim world thinks so highly of uh, Abraham. But gang, um, Israel today still suffers. And the world is ever on the brink of global war today because Israel can't get along with Ishmael. Everybody does what comes naturally. Uh, Hagar has failed as the maid and Sarah has failed as the mistress and Abraham has failed as a man. Um, Hagar runs. Sarah gripes. She carps. And Abraham buckles. What a mess. How do people get themselves in messes like this? Oh, it's pretty easy. Bad decision here, poor choice there. Lean on the arm of the flesh. 
you're in a big mess. We're told in verse 7, and it's very important that you see this because as we develop this, but uh, you'll notice that God intervenes. We're told that the angel of the Lord. Now, gang, this is the first mention of an angel in the Bible. But it's not just any angel. If you'll notice the language, the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 13 with me uh, because Hagar says uh, she has seen the Lord. She calls him the God who sees uh, and she says, I call the name of the Lord. That is, she identifies the one that she talked to in verse 7 as the Lord. Gang, listen to me. The, this collection of words that you find there, the angel of the Lord. When you find that language in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, only in the Old Testament, when you find the angel of the Lord, what you have there, most commentarians would agree, is something called a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's a Christophany. Well, what you have now is Christ appearing, not to Abraham, but to Hagar. Uh, he appears not to the heir of the promise, but to this Egyptian fugitive. He appears to a man, uh, to, not to a man, but to a woman. Not to the insider, but the outsider. N- not to the one of rank, but to the slave. Now, gang, what you get in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis is a story about the human dilemma. You get complex issues and complex decisions faced by broken people and the messes that the broken people make. And then you get the God who intervenes. That's what this is about. I want to do two things with this story, ladies and gentlemen. I want to try to fix the mess, and then I want you to meet the hero, and then we're finished. First of all, how do you fix the mess? Well, gang, one of the ways that you fix the mess is you try to make better decisions. Now, decision-making is, is inherently a messy uh, venture. Gang, um, it is not unusual that, that God remains silent with us. In fact, he's been silent a whole lot more than he's spoken. But the reason I say that is, you've got to remember something about this story. God had not given specific directions in this matter. Back in chapter 15, verse 4, when he tells Abraham that he's going to have a son, he does not mention the name of the mother. So the point is, uh, having Hagar bear the woman and bear the son could have possibly been what God meant. You see, the point is that God doesn't give specifics. He simply gives guidelines. And just like Abraham and Sarah, you and I are faced with decisions, dilemmas, complex circumstances where we have nothing but guidelines, not specifics. So how are we going to improve our chances of making good decisions when all we've got is guidelines? Gang, do you understand what I'm saying? Hagar could have been what God intended. Because God didn't mention the specific mother. But it was obviously wrong. So we're in situations like that, where we face decisions, we're we're trying to make choices, and all we've got 
is guidelines, only general principles. So in the midst of that, I want to give you six suggestions, six helps that will hopefully increase our batting average of good decisions. You ready? Here they are. Number one, gang, you've got to guard against taking matters into your own hands. I know that sounds like general, let me fill in the blanks, but gang, um, what they should have been asking is not what should we do about this. What they should have been asking is what would God have us do in the midst of this dilemma? Um, I say to you, if it feels like you're taking matters into your own hands, you probably are. What you have in this story is a couple of frustrated people. In the midst of their circumstance, there are a couple of frustrated people. And so they they say, okay, I can handle this. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about the rest of you, but I can feel that in my in my psyche. I can remember instances where I said, well, dead government, I'll show you. I'll be glad to figure this out. You can't do it. You can't do it, but I can do it. And so we lean on the arm of the flesh. Related to number one is number two. Let me kind of tie the, combine these two. Gang, guard against making quick decisions. Or wait. The most, perhaps the most difficult spiritual discipline of all is simply waiting. If, if you're in a hurry to get this thing over with, whatever this thing is, I just want to get it over with, whatever it is, family, parental, professional, you just want to get it over with, You're headed to a mistake. Because, ladies and gentlemen, God is never in a hurry. His timetable is always slower than ours. Um, we, we can't speed things up, but we can sure slow them down. You know, I, I realize that there are some instances where we have to make immediate decisions. But that's, 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 the, that's the exception. Those are the rare ones. You know, when Susie and I were in seminary, we um, we lived in this little house. Actually, it was a little shack uh, on the seminary campus. They bulldozed it now. Um, oh, years ago, they bulldozed it. I guess right after we moved out, they bulldozed the thing. Uh, it kind of doubled as firewood for the rest of the seminary students. You know, people would come across, come over in the winter and just kind of rip off a side for their fireplaces. And the the front porch fell off. And, and uh, but it was a it was a wonderful little place. We loved it. It, was, it must have been 500 square feet, maybe. And, um, but to, when we moved in there, we realized we needed something to wash our clothes. We didn't have anything. So we went out to look for a washing machine. We were going to buy our, our washing machine. I guess it was our first washing machine. I don't know that we ever owned one before then. But so we did all the, you know, what you're supposed to do. And we went to Cowboy Bob's and, and Cowboy Bob's had uh, washing machines on sale. And so, um, I, I forget the exact figures, but it's like, uh, they wanted 200 bucks for this washing machine. I don't know how much it was, but anyway, um, but the, but the salesman said, if you'll, if you'll buy it in the next hour, I'll sell it to you for one fifty. And I'm telling you, that produces crisis in me, ladies and gentlemen. We didn't have two dimes to rub together, and I was trying to save every dime we, you know, that we had. But we came to a decision over that, and it's been a principle that has been with us ever since that, the early days of our marriage. And here's, here's the principle. You can have it. It's, all, it's free of charge. You can use it. It's simply this. If I am pressed, if I am hurried, if I am demanded to make a quick decision, the answer is always no. Gang. Are you tired of waiting for a date? Somebody ask you out? You're tired of waiting for a spouse? 
You're tired of waiting for a job promotion? Watch out. Because people who are in a hurry tend to lean on the arm of the flesh. Beware of making or taking matters into your own hands. And, and the, the timing of the decision is always going to lead to that. Guard against making decisions where you've taken it over and guard against making quick decisions. Here's number three. According to this story, ladies and gentlemen, even the people who are the closest to us, the people that we trust the most, Sarah, my wife, can mislead us. Back in the uh, spring of 19, uh, 2003, my daughter Megan was working for a congressman in Washington, D.C. She was uh, well-esteemed. She was a, um, uh, at what they called an L.A., a legislative assistant. And she was, she's, she's a very bright girl. And so she was doing quite a good job. And in the midst of her job, she gets exposed to this agency known as KidSafe. And she discovers that KidSafe uh, wants to, uh, or every year, brings orphans from around the world into this country with the whole hope that these, these orphans will get adopted. And so she goes home, talks to her husband, and they say, well, you know, we're not doing anything this weekend. Why don't we get one of those? Why don't we host one of those uh, orphans? So they sign up to host an orphan. I think it was eight weeks, six weeks, whatever it was. And so they go to the airport to pick up their little orphan. And um, as the, the, the moment that little boy walked off that airplane, the wheels begin to spin in my daughter's head and her, her husband's. Two weeks, three weeks into it, they're telling us they're going to adopt. They're going to adopt this little boy. And I said, oh, don't do that. No, no, no. Don't, don't quit. You, and it's not that I'm opposed to adoption, ladies and gentlemen. It's just that they've never done their homework. It's like they were out buying a puppy one day and they wanted to keep it. And I thought, don't do that. I mean, my goodness, stop. Quit. Don't do it. Forget it. As you know, they did adopt that young little boy. And he's now my grandson. His name is Kolya. And you know what? I was wrong. But one of their most trusted advisors gave them real bad advice. Beware, my friend. People the closest to you, they still can mislead you. Fourth, if you're making a decision that's like the way you used to do it, it's probably wrong. If you're doing things the way you used to do them, it's probably wrong. If you're doing just what comes naturally, hmm, we're looking for the supernatural. So it's probably wrong. If it's just the way you used to do them back when you were, you know, in college and you were a pagan, probably wrong. Fifthly, gang, listen, our choices need to be in accord with principles of Scripture that we know. Did you hear me? Our decisions must be in accord with principles of Scripture that we know. For instance, we know that humility is a prized virtue in the Scriptures. We know that denying the flesh is always a good thing. We know that exercising faith is something that God would have us do. Don't we? We know those things. We know that living by faith, denying the flesh, and living in humility is all good. Then make a decision in accord with those principles that we know to be true. 
You know, Robert Frost wrote a famous poem. The, 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 the poem was The Road Not Taken. But he talks about um, how he, uh, he's taking these two paths uh, that, uh, that diverged in the yellow wood. And he chooses the one that was less traveled. And the last line in the poem is, and it made all the difference. Gang, I can promise you, if you choose the one that is marked by humility, by self-denial and faith, it will be the one that is less traveled, and it will make all the difference. Choose in accord with that which is expressing humility, that demands self-denial, and expresses faith. You want to make a difference? There it is. There's the road less traveled for you, ladies and gentlemen. You know, some decisions are clear, ladies and gentlemen. You know, for instance, go to the go to Exodus 20 and read the Ten Commandments, and I want you to know that it says in there that you shall never, ever, 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 ever commit adultery. Just don't do it. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to pray over it. You shouldn't do it. Uh, it also says in 2 Corinthians 6 that you are never, ever, 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 ever to marry a non-Christian. That's pretty clear. Clear principles. Some of, the, some of the decisions that you and I face are, are, are easy. If you offer me a fillet or liver for supper, I'm taking fillet every time. But gang, those are, the, those are the ones that are fairly simple, pretty simple, obviously simple. But so many of them are not so obviously right or wrong. Do you know the name Jerry Sitzer? Jerry Sitzer's a guy whose testimony, some of you have heard, Jerry Sitzer lost his wife, his mother-in-law, and a child in a car accident several, six years ago or so, and written a couple of books, and, and uh, it's been ten years since uh, his wife was killed, and, and he says, now I'm facing the decision, do I remarry? He said, we got people on this side saying, you ought to remarry, you ought to remarry, you ought to remarry. Got them on this side, don't remarry, don't remarry, don't remarry. What do I do? Well, the only thing that I can tell Jerry is this, choose the road less traveled. The one that expresses humility, that demands self-denial, and is an expression of faith. Whichever one that is, choose that one. Here's my final uh, point, ladies and gentlemen, about trying to fix the mess. Saturate your minds with God's word, gang. We need to see the big picture. And very honestly, the outline of that big picture is obvious. God is clear when and where it is critical. So uh, many of our decisions will be made a whole lot easier if we simply knew the big picture. So get to work, ladies and gentlemen. You want this mess? You don't want the mess. I can tell you one of the things that you could do to avoid it is saturate yourselves in the truth of God. Gang, I have been in the ministry almost 30 years. It will be 30 years in June. And, and I have, not a few times, have had Christians. By the way, these are God's people in 16. I've had Christians sit in my office who have, who have resorted to expedience. And they have created messes that are, humanly speaking, insoluble. Beware, my brother and sister in Christ. Are you contemplating some kind of expedience to obtain what it is you think is God's will for your marriage or your family or your, or your career or your education or your ministry. Watch out. If you are, take a deep breath, step back, wait, 
Study more of God's word. Think, meditate, pray, and obey. Maybe that'll fix some of the messes. But now, let me close. I want to, I want you to meet the hero. Gang, this pagan Egyptian slave woman is told by Christ to turn around, go back, and submit, surrender. If she does what comes naturally, she'll continue to run. If she chooses Christ, she'll submit. My friends, there is nothing cheap about the gospel that we preach around here. Which is the reason that so many 21st century people choose to keep heading south. Gang, it's impossible to follow Jesus Christ without being led away from something. That, that turn away from those familiar places and towards those new places, that's called Christianity. In order to follow this Savior, something must be left behind. And then you go and you surrender. For Hagar, she went back to Abraham And Abraham's God became her God. She tells Abraham that he's been named Ishmael. And and Ishmael, she surrenders to God's will. And and he uses that name to name his son. And ladies and gentlemen, it was Jesus who came to the rescue. Folks, the hero of every human mess is Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with that. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that um, you have spoken a great deal, but there is much that we must choose and decide and, and follow and yield and all that business, Lord. So for the messes that people are experiencing right now, I pray, Lord, that you will remind them that there is grace to be found in the midst of the mess because Jesus is always the hero of the human messes. And I pray, Lord, if people live here today in the midst of their mess without Jesus, I pray that you will draw them to his his precious bleeding side. Might the great hero of this whole book become dearer to all of us. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.